Welcome to Just Ahead Podcast. My name is Adele Dujardin, teacher turned life and leadership coach with a passion for helping others live a life that is happily theirs. Through interviews with folks five to 10 years out of college, you will hear how they have carved out satisfying careers of all kinds. Here I speak with Nora Roper to learn how after graduating Barnard College with a degree in physics, she is years later, the co-founder of Lost Lantern Whiskey, an independent bottler of American craft whiskey in Southern Vermont. Enjoy. So hello. Hi. So we have Nora with us today. And Nora, I just, I can't wait to learn about you. So would you first be willing to share just kind of what it is you're up to now, and then we can learn a little bit about how you got there? Yeah. So right now I'm in the process of starting up a whiskey company, Um, living in Vermont, spending a lot of time on the road, visiting distilleries all over the country and finding the best whiskey that's out there and in the process of putting all of that into bottle and getting it onto store shelves this spring slash summer. So so you're about to actually launch the product. So like, do you have, like, if I came to you right now, do you have a bottle of whiskey for me to sample? No. So I have, I can show you the label and I can let you tell the, or taste the whiskey, but we do not have our whiskey yet in our bottle. Okay. We're bottling in two weeks and then we'll have a final product. All right. So you're bottling in two weeks. And what is the name of your whiskey? So the company um, is called Lost Lantern Spirits. We bottle under Lost Lantern Whiskey. And our first product is called American Batted Malt. Okay. All right. And gosh, so many questions are running through my head. I'm trying to figure out where do I want to start? A little bit first, just like why whiskey and how and who, when you say we, who's we and how'd you get there? How'd you get here? That's a good place to start. So my partner in my business is also my fiance. So that helps (laughs) with the story. So I really, why whiskey comes partially for him from him, but also I have a background in wine and spirits. I worked on the sales floor of the biggest wine and spirits store in New York City called Aster Wines and Spirits. I came in as a wine person, but fell in love with spirits of all kinds, rum, tequila, whiskey there, and really spent my two and a half years there learning about spirits. And was that right after college you did that? Was not. It was, it was after spending five years in finance and being done with finance and knowing that I was super interested in wine Mm -hmm. and read a ton of textbooks, but you don't really know what it's like until you taste the wine. And I couldn't afford a lot of the wine that I was reading about. So working in a store was a great way to learn and experience and really build up the sensory side of my wine knowledge in addition to kind of all the book stuff. Um, And what did you do in the store? I initially was a salesperson on the floor telling people all about wine and spirits and selling stuff. But it, it, this story really is about being an encyclopedia for people who come in and want to buy wine. It's, it's, it's a store that's known as having really educated salespeople that you can go in and say, I liked this wine, give me six others that are like it. And then the expectation is that we could go around and do that. Yeah. Very quickly so, though, I, would- I just want to ask you when you, when you applied for that job, at this point, were you knowledgeable enough that you were hired without any training? Like, how did you sell yourself for that job? Yeah, so the expectation is that we had a pretty decent knowledge of wine. I had had tons of wine just socially, but I did read 
my um, previous job had required two hours um, of commute each way every day. Mm. I was living in Brooklyn and working in Connecticut and they would bus us from New York out to Connecticut. So I would spend my two hours coming home every day reading wine textbooks. And this was when you were in finance. This is when I was in finance. Yes. But that was my escape, tech, wine textbooks somehow. So it was kind of, a, it was kind of your playtime. Like what, what interests me and how am I going to make use of this two-hour period as opposed to, ugh, I have this horrible commute. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So you just started reading about wines, not happy in the financial world. Correct. Why, why wasn't it a good fit? Why I think in general with finance, there's a very hierarchical structure mm -hmm. where you pay your dues, like you run a, as a first year, you spend a lot of your time getting coffee and running errands for people. It takes a long, long time for you to be able to provide even questions, let alone insight and really contribute in a creative way. It's also such a male-dominated field. Not that whiskey isn't. <laughs> it's, it's probably more male-dominated. But uh -huh. as a young woman, that did not feel very good. Mm -hmm. Just kind of the, the position that I was being put in. And also a lot of the, when it comes down to it, the, the choices that big banks make from a moral standpoint didn't really align with what I believed about the world and our position in it. And even though my... I, I worked two jobs. My first job was helping corporations hedge their foreign exchange risk. So basically, it's in the world of finance, it's probably one of the least quote unquote evil things that you could do. You're just helping someone not be hit by the British pound becoming very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't <laughs> doing, doing any of the, the kind of loans that were a problem in um, 2008, but it's still, it just left a bad taste in my mouth at the end of the day. So what informed the leap you did make? Because I'm sure you could have leaped different directions. So I actually took six months off, off. Mm. And I traveled around the world and I thought about what I wanted to do and I debated, did I want, like, I love reading about wine, but is, what do the careers look like? Do I even have any interest in, in the types of careers that exist in the wine industry. Um, so did some research on that, but spent six months just kind of detoxing from the crazy life that is being, being in finance, especially when you're young. And so spent some time and really thought about it. And what I realized is I would never know if I liked the jobs, mm. if I didn't try it and see what's out there. So, and, and what were some of the jobs that you um, encountered when you were doing your research? Yeah, so the two jobs that I ended up applying for were this job in this, in this wonderful store that my whole family had fallen in love with. And we bought a lot of wine from there and it always really loved the experience. Yeah. And then I also, and I lived in New York at the time, so that was the easy, the easy option. It felt like it could fit into my life. The other one was kind of the ultimate leap of faith, which in the end, I didn't end up taking, not because I actually rejected it, but just from, a, from timing, where I applied to what is called a crush facility out in California that basically wineries bring all of their grapes together and then they crush it and turn it into grape juice that eventually becomes wine. So I applied to that because I figured I would learn a lot about wine production. And the reason I ended up going, going with the store is they offered me a job first. It was yeah. by the time, basically the amount of time that they gave me to make a decision came and went before the other place offered me a job. So a, so a practical um, answer to that question of which 
path within the wine industry. So you took that, you were at Aster, you're educating yourself as well as the customers, and then what? Um, so very quickly, I got promoted to sales manager there. So uh-huh. I was running the floor, which was cool because they gave me a lot of reign to we had a pretty old school commission system that was based off of trying to sell a lot in volume. Mm. And I basically redid the whole commission system. So that it was based off of repeat customers and the commission re- redid the commission structure because it felt better to the salespeople because you, yeah. it changes that entire dynamic where you're not trying to sell the cheapest thing in high volume. Right. And you probably felt that kind of like unease in the store on the floor, like got to sell, yeah. got to sell, got to sell. And so you really turned that model on its head. And what do you think they saw in you? They've obviously picked well, what were you doing or what did you exhibit that gave you that promotion? I think it was thinking globally. So trying to figure out where things weren't happening that needed to happen and filling those gaps because we had pretty regimented days where you, you check to make sure everything is in stock at two o'clock and you check at five and then you check right before the store closes. But realizing that in the summer, the rosé section sells out by three and then it's sitting empty between three and five and just understanding those kind of global dynamics, even within a small store and being able to anticipate that and then rally the troops where I like the joke was I was essentially managing everyone well before I got the promotion. Uh So you just, you just saw places for improvement really. And it seems like you're almost wired to do that or took pleasure in it because you were trying in a way, it seems to me to make your job as interesting as possible for yourself. So how long, so then you were the sales manager and how long were you um, in that role? Somewhere between a year and a half and two years. Okay. So six months in the normal sales role. And when I was a sales manager, I was also still on the floor selling and doing all of that because it was really important to still kind of feel that dynamic and be plugged into what people are drinking and what we have to sell. So I think I was an Aster all in two and a half years. And what were some of the things that you um, feel people that you worked with admired about you like or people who worked under you um, when you were managing them I mean I think my work ethic so showing that I had their back and sometimes during the holidays we work long hours and I wouldn't go sit in the back and relax I'd be there with them carrying things and talking to people and really being in the trenches with them and then also I think people respected the compensations fixed because not only did the store make more money but they made more money So they saw that I was trying to make their life better through that process. Yeah. So, and after you were the sales manager, did you stay with them or move on altogether? No. So I left because that was basically as high up as I could go. The next step after sales manager is to become buyer. Mm -hmm. I asked her, there was a wine buyer and she had been there for 20 years and wasn't leaving. So... I, there wasn't really any upward trajectory and the other immediate jobs outside of Aster in wine were to be a sommelier, mm-hmm. which is interesting, but the hours mm. were just something that I couldn't do because yeah. you work six to two in the morning and it's very taxing and you have to love selling in a way that I never did. Mm-hmm. So I actually, after Aster, I took a job I had realized that I loved the industry, but there weren't any real jobs Mm. in the industry that fit me unless I made one for myself. So with that in mind, I went and got an operations manager and then eventually got promoted to chief of staff at a startup. 
Okay. So learning, I went, I don't know anything about business. In a, in a retail startup? No, it was a, it was a random, uh, basically it ended up being a music startup, but I knew, I knew that essentially if I wanted to make my own role, I had to have a business that was mine. And I knew a lot about the industry at this point, but I didn't really know anything about building a business from scratch. Gotcha. All right. So hold on. So hold on. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. So Aster, that you have the woman who's been a buyer there for 20 years, you know, you're loving the industry yes. and the other role available, the sommelier, you're saying to yourself, the hours and the particular aspect of the job, not for me. But I hear you saying again and again, it sounds like it really served you, is you, you've been pretty clear on what you like and what you don't like and, and honoring what you want in a lifestyle. Yes. And um, so now, okay, wine industry, but I need some, I need some really practical experience if I'm going to create my own business within it. So you right. go to the music startup. Yeah. And, and what do you say to them? How do you get, how do you like get your foot in the door there? They were looking for someone to clean up their operations. Uh -huh. And I said, that's what I do. I haven't done it in startups, but we can talk about the work that I've done. I even, even did at, in the finance jobs when I was given a little leeway, I would, I would clean up the processes. I did that at my wine job. And I said, now I want to do it from scratch. Hmm. I want to build it. I'd always cleaned up. Yeah. But now I want the opportunity to build something based off of what you want. Okay. And they liked that. And I talked to a lot of people and they went, Oh, you have no experience. But these guys said, you know what? This makes sense to us. Yeah. It's been like my, when you look at my resume kind of until I have until now, hmm. It's been like, where is this leading? Why is this leading to this place? But one of the things I learned very early on in, in interviews, especially, is you have to tell the story. You have to tell them why. And because people may not be able to connect the dots, but yeah. generally there is a thread that, that brings you to what you want next. So that's kind of how you sold yourself, kind of saying, hey, forget the finance, forget the wine. I mean, how would you describe that thread when you went to them? It's, it's cleaning up, making things, uh, making processes more mm -hmm. efficient. It's understanding what is needed to get a business from one place to another in an efficient way that, ke that empowers employees and yeah. makes the business function better. So. Yeah. So you're like an efficiency master. You're like a Mary Poppins for business. Yeah. Kind of like, let me just work my magic and having this thing flow and be hyper productive yes. and, and profitable. So you're at the music place. Yes. And it became very clear that that business was not going anywhere okay. where it's the classic startup tale. Someone has an idea that seems brilliant and in, in a tiny focused area, it sounds like a good idea, but there's no market for it. Mm. And they were also a business that had a very wealthy co-founder. Mm -hmm. And so she endlessly fed money into it. Mm -hmm. What I hadn't realized was this startup had been around for eight years mm -hmm. and still didn't even really have a website, let alone a product. Mm. So they, they basically, it's, the, it, it's funny because I still keep in touch with a lot of what we call an alumni where everyone basically lasts a year and then the whole staff turns. Because once you're there for a year and there's no progress made within that year, everyone gets out. So are there any red flags um, that one could look for in those kinds of situations that, you, you know, your younger self didn't see but might be evident? Yes. I think that in small startups, you have to be 
really thoughtful about who the founder is. This founder was a brilliant musician, but generally you should be wary of someone that takes a really advanced skill and, and assumes that that can be moved into management or strategic thinking. Sometimes people are great at that, but I find often those are entirely different skill sets. I think one of the things was the person who was supposed to be my boss left my second day while I was there. So when that was obviously a red flag as soon as I got there, but he was awesome. And I was really excited to work for him. And all of a sudden he was gone and I was working directly with the founder. But I think the fact that this really accomplished person that had worked in startups previously was there gave me confidence that without him there, I would definitely not have had. And my reality was that he didn't exist really while I was there. It gave me a lot of opportunity though, with all of the craziness to really learn about how not to manage a startup. Right. So an anti-role model. Exactly. And where the pitfalls are and when yeah. demoralized. And I think while not super pleasant in the moment, yeah. it has been invaluable in my life. Mm-hmm. especially as I build my own business to have what that example. Are three takeaways for you when you treat your people well, mm-hmm. empower them and give them the opportunity to make mistakes mm. a few times, obviously within, within realistic bounds, but that's how people learn. Mm-hmm. Two is don't be overconfident. Mm. Assume that you're missing things. And three, as a founder myself, be really cautious about founder syndrome, which okay. basically means that you think that the the business couldn't function without you. And that generally makes you very protective of power and it creates all like many of the things that I talked about in one and two, it, it creates all of that. So I hear you say if someone's really going into a startup is, is really look at the founder mm-hmm. and the dynamic there. The founder, mm-hmm. especially in a startup, it is the culture in yes. some ways when it's so small. Yeah. And what could be some like cultural indicators, you know, when you're walking into a place? It's a good question. For me, as a woman, I always look for diversity. I find mm-hmm. that when there's a diversity of people in an interview process, like it's only a small indicator, mm-hmm. but companies with diversity are more likely to be open to new ideas. That's not always true, but it is a good indicator of what you might be able to expect. I also ask people if they could change one thing about the company, what would it be? And if every person you ask that question, it's cultural, run. And I also try to read the room, just see, like you can, you can sometimes feel when someone's tired. You can't always, yeah. but sometimes you can just get a sense of if there's a consistent mood to the mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hear you using that word consistent. So it's not mm-hmm. just don't base it off one or two people. Like if it's that, if it's the overall kind of temperature. Yes. So, okay. So music startup, you, and, and at what point are we after college? Music startup was only a couple of years ago. So I graduated in 2008. What did you major? I majored in physics. Ah, very good. It's still very much patterns and numbers and Uh not something that is always directly applicable, but definitely a way of thinking that I found highly valuable in my life since. Uh And where did you go to college? I went to Barnard um, in um, New York City. Okay. All right, so Barnard, physics major, and so post-music startup. Yeah, so I think I was just doing the math in my head. I think that was about eight years out Mm -hmm. from school. 
school. And then, so after the music startup, I got another job at a startup. Mm -hmm. So totally different. I, I realized that I still had a lot to learn. I, I learned a lot of what not to do. Yeah. And I wanted to learn. And you, you, I didn't have a guarantee that this would be true, but I really yeah. wanted to find a startup that was relatively early stage, but I felt really positive about the product and about the culture, which I hadn't been as picky about before because I was coming from outside of the industry. So it was, I had less of an ability to be choosy. Mm -hmm. And so I took a job. Initially, my titles at startups are so weird. Initially, I was just, my title was a manager. But I basically, I was basically hired to build, taking a step back, the startup I worked at was a relatively early stage startup. And it was a, a really amazing education. Mm. And, but a very classic startup experience where we were working very, very long hours yeah. and all of the downsides of startups as well. And so you sounds like though you really gained, I mean, the other almost was like what not to do. And this sounds like you gained experience of that you took forward as well, but. Yes. By and large, what to do, how to build things. Yeah. How to negotiate well. How long were you at the second startup? Two years. Okay. Two years. Yeah. Um, there so for two years and kind of towards the end of it, you're like, okay, it's time now. Yeah. And what, what gave you that, that prompting to know it was time? So, well, so the original whiskey business idea came from my partner. He was um, one of the premier whiskey journalists in the country. So he wrote for Whiskey Advocate. He um, is a really is really well known in the business, and he actually said, "We need to do this idea. You and I need to do this idea. I have all the contacts. I know how to write. I can do the marketing side, but I really need you to come in and run the business." And we started talking about it. I guess like a year before I left my job, and it felt a little early because one of the tenets of our business is that craft whiskey is really good now if you know where to look, and we felt like the whiskey wasn't quite ready. And a year later we went, okay, there are enough distilleries making whiskey that are world-class that we can do our business. So that's when we knew it was time. Um, and we took the leap of faith and left both of our jobs. Um, and actually we traveled around the country for eight months visiting uh -huh. distilleries because uh -huh. what we realized is even though the numbers worked, yeah. if no one was willing to sell us whiskey, yeah. It didn't matter. So what do you mean no one willing to sell you whiskey? Yes. Um, so what we do for our business is we buy individual barrels from different craft distilleries and we either put them out mm -hmm. by themselves, kind of as a curated lineup of the best of the best, or we blend them together to create new flavors. So what we didn't know, and we and we do it with full transparency. So we want to put their name on the bottle. That's part of what we do. We want to sing their praises. We think that that's really the value that we add is we point the direction towards what's amazing. But what we didn't totally know was, would people trust us enough to use their brand name on our bottles? Mm. And I honestly don't think they would have trusted me by myself, but because my business partner is such a well-known quantity and trusted in the industry, they said, yeah, for you, how many? Aww. So, so that was how we, we finally knew that, okay, we can do this yeah. and we really got to work. Well, I just love this because it's like the blending of you too is like the blending of the whiskey. Yes. <laughs> so, wow. So you did it. So, you, and, but you were, as you said, kind of it was, that was parallel when, to the 
having the position in the second startup. Yes. And then you did the traveling and kind of secured it all to make sure if we go forward, people are going to open their doors to us. And where are you now with it? So the interesting thing about our business, is we're not a distillery. So we don't currently have a warehouse. We don't have all the equipment. We realized that we could ramp up our business really quickly by contracting out our bottling, essentially. So we buy the barrels and we move them to a facility and they do all the work. And in two weeks, they'll put everything in the bottle and it'll be ready to sell. And I think that in the short term is great because that means we can continue traveling around the country and finding more whiskey. And like, what's, what's making you so excited at this moment about having your own business or this particular business? Well, going back to what you originally said about lifestyle is I work when I want to and I am the one who sets the goals. And so it's scary that the business lives and dies by us, but it also means that like this morning, I wanted to go see my grandmother. And so I could drive down and see her and no one would be looking over my shoulder or questioning whether I could get my work done where I really am able to build the business in the way that I want to. I'm also really excited as I look down the road, whiskey, the whiskey industry is not diverse at all. There are very few women, let alone people of color. And I'm really excited for when I get to start hiring people and can bring people in that make the industry more than just white bearded men. Yeah. So that's also kind of further down the line, uh-huh. but I really, really look forward to that. Yeah. Very nice. And what about um, any advice that you'd like to share before we finish up on terms of like things you wish you'd known, advice you wish you'd gotten? I think advice that I did get, but I think is really important to hear is no matter where you are, work really hard. Mm-hmm. And Show people that you care in your thinking because, I mean, for me, that's opened a lot of doors that I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated people saying, hey, have you thought about this thing? Or that the second startup I worked at, I got through a series of referrals from people that I had happened to interact with once and they had a great experience. Mm -hmm. And also spending the time to figure out if you don't like a job, why you don't like it, or if you like a job, why you like it. For me, it took three or four years to realize that all of the stuff that I enjoyed was basically puzzles in Mm -hmm. different forms. And I feel like that was pretty fast. um, And I was lucky that way, but it's because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. So trying to understand what makes you tick. And honestly, it's okay if it's not work. Mm -hmm. Like not everyone is going to be driven by work, but finding work that works with the lifestyle that you want and what does make you tick. I think trying Mm -hmm. to figure that out and learn, okay, that wasn't right. That's okay that it wasn't right. And taking another step is really important in kind of zigzagging your way into something that is fulfilling. Yeah. I hear that very much from what you've described in terms of, yeah, if it's not working, that's okay. Figure out what about it is working and what's not, and don't be afraid to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. And any, any pitfalls, like you're like, Oh my gosh, I, why did I do that? I think spending so much time worrying about what people think. Mm. Cause I think, Coming out of school, there's a lot of focus on like, am I doing the perfect thing in this context? And yes, you want to understand if you're asking too many questions or getting in people's way. But I think for me, I was so worried about doing the right thing that I didn't necessarily 
take advantage of all the opportunities available. Cause I was so hyper-focused and wanted to be perfect and go the, the distance instead of saying, Oh, well, I just, I'll like this side project looks kind of cool. Mm. And I mean, I think also something that we talked about a little bit is knowing your weaknesses and not thinking of, uh, about them as things you want to hide and reject. I think anyone that says that they know their weaknesses totally are they're lying to themselves. But I think spending time trying to understand if there's once again, consistency, but consistency in where you're messing up or missing things. I wish I had started thinking about that earlier. And what do you think a good way is to think about these things? I think it is both internal thinking about where you feel yourself seizing up. And if you notice it, but I also think it's really asking for feedback and really wanting negative and not taking it personally and understanding, I mean, and hopefully working in an environment where the goal is, everybody's goal is making you a better human. Yeah. And that can mean telling you the hard thing. But I think it's also seeking out and saying, hey, have you noticed me making the same mistake at all or any patterns or something and trying to get that, that outside feedback. And I've always found when I ask that people are so tickled, they like get so excited and feel uh -huh. like you're really engaged and that you're trying to get better. And it's yeah. only ever paid off. Sometimes people won't give you the feed, the hard feedback, but at least you've asked. Right. And what I hear you doing is you're engaging them. So instead of it's like me versus my boss or me versus my coworkers, it's let, let's join. You're kind of asking them to join with you. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Anything else that you feel like we didn't touch on? I mean, I think in general, work can't be everything. Mm -hmm. Even though I work long hours and my business is really, really uh, central to my life. Yeah. I think that especially when you're young, you have to try a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to talk to a lot of people in whatever way makes sense for you. But I think the only way that I got where I am now is by doing a bunch of stuff that too. I think in general, if you're interested in something, it's worth spending a little time checking it out. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nora. Yeah. I really, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for listening to Just Ahead. Be sure to rate and subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about me, visit my website at www.agoodlife.coach or follow me on Instagram at agoodlife.coach. Join us again next week to hear more folks share the practical and inspirational around their working lives post-college.